to the Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hey, good morning. I just wanted to let you know that Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of the Meaningful Marketplace because we believe in the power of local craft makers to reinvent the way food and beverage products get to market in Oregon. Our vision is to inspire, mentor, support, and assist local producers reach their fullest potential. For over 40 years, Market of Choice has been supporting our local farmers, ranchers, fisher folk, and entrepreneurs. We believe the way we source products has a positive ripple effect across our great state. That's why we are proud to offer over 7,000 local products to our stores and that the majority of our purchases support our robust regional food system. Yay, Market of Choice. Uh, Our our guest um, product is at Market of Choice. And this week, they're doing a special... 20% 20% off all local goods at Market of Choice. So a lot of our guests we've had on the show, you can get their products this week at a discount. So thanks, Market of Choice, for sponsoring us and sponsoring all of our local pals in the community. It's super exciting. Awesome. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Masoni and Marshall, a meaningful marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear stories of female food entrepreneurs. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Masoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. We're glad that you all joined us live today. Uh, we're honoring our social distancing still and calling in for the show. Uh, as we're a live radio show, we think it's important for us to be here with tips and stories of inspiration for all of our friends out there. So we're continuing to do the show live. Uh, I do have some food news today. Uh, We know there's kind of a flour shortage and everybody's home baking, but we wanted to tell you about um, a fellow food friend, innovator, who's getting creative, uh, Kat Lesseur, who's a past owner of Coquette Restaurant. She's created a brand called Little Lucy Bread Club, and you can find her Instagram links under Little Lucy underscore Bread Club, and you can order a sourdough bread service that every month it can be delivered to you, or you can just order products. Um, order bread for the day and she'll deliver it to you. So um, go out there and find Kat if you don't feel like baking stuff at home. I know sometimes people start baking and then they get burned out on it or they realize they're just not good at it. (laughs) Kat's really good at it. (laughs) So you can utilize that service. If you're a food entrepreneur and you have a press release for us to announce, you can submit those at startupradionetwork.com and we will help you spread the word about events, new products, anything you want us to talk about. So send those our way. Any food news, Sarah? Uh, yeah. Actually, this is kind of exciting news. It's about me. Oh, let's hear it. Uh, I'm on the ballot for the Specialty Foods Association Board of Directors. Whoa, that's cool, man. Yeah. I had an interview with them earlier this spring. 
while we were in um, social distancing quarantine, and they decided they wanted to invite me to join. And so now, if you're a member of the Specialty Foods Association, make, make sure and go and vote. You should when have is, got. When's the voting period? Do you know? Uh, it started, I think, last Friday, and I am not certain. It's probably several weeks they allow for voting. You get a link yeah. and you go and click and vote, and then um, everything will be announced in June. Cool. Well, if you're a member, go on there and vote for Sarah because she um, definitely is awesome uh, for all of us people on that membership. Anyways, I mean, I feel like you already seemed like a board member because <laughs> you're so involved with them, you know? I know. Actually, I'm going to be on uh, June 4th. I'm going to be on a webinar with them. So we'll be talking about um, food entrepreneurship and how to pivot in times like this. So if people want to become members of the um, Specialty Food Association, is that process pretty easy? You just go online and apply and pay a member. Yeah. Fee, right. Well, yeah. you actually have to get reviewed and you okay. have to have referrals and um, you have to have a certain number of stores that you're selling in, things like okay. that. So it's a little cool. bit of a process. You have to send your food into them to have them review it. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, but so they, maybe, have, they have a lot of great support services and education and things like that. Yeah, they do a lot of classes. I know I've been part a couple of a couple of those before. Mm -hmm. So it's a good um, service for people to have. Yeah. Cool. Well, so, good luck to you. I hope you win and you get on the board. And I know it should be fun. It's a three-year term, so it'll be interesting to see how much I can influence. Yeah. Based on how we do things in Oregon. I don't know if there's ever been a board member. Oh, yes. David Gremmels was on the board um, of Rogue Creamery. Cool. A couple of years ago. So. Awesome. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. But we are joined today by Lola Maholland, who is the CEO of Portland-based Umi Organics. Umi Organics makes chewy, springy, fresh organic noodles. Welcome, Lola. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you today. Good to see you guys, too. Uh, we want to uh, help our listeners find you on social media so they can follow along and connect with you. Can you give us the best way for people to find you online? Sure, yep. <clears throat> I am an Instagram user at Umi Organic, um, hashtag in the nudes. And then also Facebook, so Umi Organic. Those are the two best stops. Perfect. Well, people will find you. Your Instagram is really fun because you have a lot of um, customer interaction and people send in all these different pictures of the things that they're making. And whenever I look through it, I feel like people get really creative with the noodles because I have you know, had your product for a lot of time and I always just make like ramen and make you know yeah. soup noodles but people make all kinds of things on there yeah. i saw um a nacho ramen which i thought was yeah. really cool i think that was by heather anderson one of our uh past guests oh and yeah i also saw people made little um like a cake out of the noodles oh right like a spring herb it's like savory breakfast cake yeah that yeah. sounded oh. so good i want to try yeah. it for sure it does sound good is it yeah. fun to have people send in all the things that they do to you? 
the amount of creativity out there just blows my mind regularly. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, there are so many different kinds of ramen in Japan in different regions. And there are also like ramens without broth, mazemens, and also ramens that you dip into broths. It's a, it's a looser and more creative space than I think we always recognize. And I think it's really fun when people bring their own spirit to their own bowl and make something that's fun for them. So I love to see it. That's yeah, cool. it's, it's really cool. And it's cool that you share it with everybody and they can be um, interactive with you. Um, we want to help you tell your story and you, your journey. And I think for you, um, you've been part of the organic food movement here in Portland for a while. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what you did before you started Umi Organic. Sure. Yeah. Well, I will start by saying that, um, you know, my parents were involved in food in Portland and, um, I feel very fortunate to have this sort of as a as a background. And my mom worked for a predecessor of New Seasons called Nature's Fresh Northwest. And oh, so I yeah, spent I remember nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I spent like a lot of time like behind the refrigerated case, like touching people's hands when they'd reach in for yogurt or like, <laughs> you know, um, getting white fish salad from the deli case after school. So like hanging out in grocery stores was pretty familiar to me. Um my mom started working for um, organic Valley and she worked there for a really long time. And that's a very large farmer owned cooperative. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. And so I've gotten, you know, that's kind of the cauldron I was raised in, so to speak. Um, and more the more for her, the side of she's marketing and sales. Um, and so then I, you know, I studied Japanese since I was really, really young, but I always had a passion because I was, you know, I traveled to visit ranchers when I was a kid and I would go to visit farms and food was really important in my household. So um, when I graduated college, I decided to move to Portland and I was really interested in working on farm to school, which was just a movement that was beginning um, where people were trying to connect school districts to local producers. And it felt really meaningful to me because a school is a place where you can provide the same food to everyone and the quality of that food has a chance to really impact everyone who eats it. And um, also it's like, it represents, it represents so many things that I believe in around connecting regional uh, food economies. So I was really excited about that. And I went to working at EcoTrust and I ended up working there for eight years. So it's a long time. It was a long time. It was a long, well, you know, the economy crashed in 2008 and just so many things happened in that time. Um, But I worked both in food and farms and, you know, I I got to have amazing mentorship as the first law, farm to school law passed in Oregon. And then I worked in communications. I got to learn how to host events. I just learned so much there. We had a magazine, Edible Portland, and I got to learn about- Didn't you work with Deborah Kane? Isn't that lady's name? She was amazing. She's a powerhouse. She's definitely one of my inspirations. Um, She's a great mentor. Yeah, incredible. And so I worked in that space for eight years doing all kinds of different things, um, including continuing with Farm to School, um, less on the policy advocacy, but more telling stories as school districts really started to do amazing work and producers. And I think what happened to me is that the more I learned about the system and wanting to support it, the more I realized I didn't know. And, and that like maybe another way I could learn and be part of um, building a really strong regional food system was as a business. There was so much I didn't understand about distribution and costs. And, you know, I thought maybe I could still serve the things I really believe in from a different 
avenue. So there's lots of reasons yeah. I started the business, but that's definitely <laughs> one of them. <laughs> I think you started the business so that you could do the uh, bamboo noodle shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, another reason, Sarah, that I started. Yeah, the can you tell us about that? The sure, yeah. When I uh, so in Japan in the summer, there's a, a something called nagashi solmen. It means like flowing solmen noodles, and solmen are a kind of wheat noodle that's very thin and very slippery. So they have these shoots, and they they have water running, and they shoot noodles down these water slides essentially, and it's often used to help kids learn how to use chopsticks. So like you thrust your chopsticks in and you try to snatch the noodles up as they're racing past and then you eat them from a dipping sauce. And I thought it would be a really cool way to help people practice their chopstick skills here. And so my friend and I, like my friend carved or split a 10 foot piece of bamboo and we figured out how to use immersion circulators. And we built this water slide for noodles that we put in the farmer's market and we, you know, this is pre-COVID, so don't, <laughs> there was, but there was like a hand washing station and we kind of did lots of things around safety, but you could go in and we would shoot noodles down this water slide and kids and adults could practice snatching them up. And we used our ramen noodles, which are thicker than a salmon noodle. But if you're not that familiar with chopsticks, it's still a really good challenge. <laughs> um, so we hosted That's that. very fun. Yeah, many I times. I think it's really fun. And you um, you always have this way of doing all these great creative things around, um, you know, the farmer's market or doing events. And I think a lot of that comes from your event planning before. And oh, for sure. So Sometimes I just like to tell people that kind of just want to jump right into having a business that um, it's important to experience you know, businesses and food and whatever you're interested in from a bunch of different angles. And so I yeah. think that like your history of organizing these events and, and doing a lot of writing, all of that stuff becomes important into your, you know, your job now. And it's so important for people to have some kind of experience <laughs> before they start. Cause I think there's, a, there's so many things to learn, but if you just have, you know, some knowledge, it's really helpful and whatever it is that you're going to do as a business. Yeah. And often yeah. maybe you have skills and you don't know if they'll apply to your business, but they probably yeah. will because the business yeah. will demand any skill you can bring to it. <laughs> yeah. actually. <laughs> when I was like 20, I worked in a receiving, you know, of, a, of like a clothing store. And yeah. I, I feel like all of those skills came back around into when I had to be involved in shipping and stuff. And I understood yeah. a lot more of what it was going to be like for, for our product to be received in a store and how it was going to be handled, which is not always that well. So you have to like kind of do the things because some yeah. year old is going to be receiving your product. <laughs> so you totally. have to have it sort of spelled out exactly yeah. what people do with it once they get it. I have like a really vivid memory of the first big event I organized and somebody like, like took me under their shoulder and they said, you have to write a plan for your plan. Like you have to plan <laughs> the plan. Every minute. <laughs> and I, that I like held that so dear. So yeah. 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 Event organizing is a lot harder. I mean, I like give all the props to people who are event organizers because I think even I go to so many events, but the the times that I've actually organized one, you do, you you have to be ready for everything. Like I've walked into a room, an event that's supposed to be all set up and being the only person there and people are coming in a couple of hours and had to like roll in all the tables myself because there was just yeah. no one else there and I was yeah. like what am I doing yeah. <laughs> if I even Taking thought this was going to happen I would have had people help me <laughs> yeah. 
But you Lula, can you tell us what you've had to do differently because of all the social distancing? How have you pivoted oh, yeah. in your business? So, um, you know, one of the places of continuity for me with this business is that I did end up getting a contract with Portland Public Schools. It was something right. that was important to me. And I actually worked with Sarah at the Food Innovation Center on my product. Right. Um, yeah. And so we made a yakisoba noodle for school districts and was really successful. The thing that was most meaningful to me is how much the kids loved this whole grain noodle. And you can do equal parts vegetables with noodles. And it was a really big hit. Um, and so we had a contract and every six weeks we were on the Portland public menu and we had actually started getting into other school districts. So we were in Eugene and Central Point and, you know, we were talking to a lot of different schools around Oregon. And when um, they shut down schools, it just was like, you know, automatically known that um. that contract was terminated. I mean, terminated is a strong word. They um, weren't going to cook hot meals for kids anymore in the same way is a different world. And that had represented a good amount of my food service business. Um, and I have an idea for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were also selling to, um, to restaurants. So yeah, I actually, you know, we're looking, actually I'm on a grant right now. We're looking for some of the plate, single serve prepackaged stuff. Yes. And stuff that kids could put in a bowl and stick in the microwave to heat yeah. since they're distributing so much food through the school systems. I think it totally. would be really cool if you had the um, energy to actually see about maybe doing some portioned. Yeah. Um, well, so, right. I just delivered noodles, noodles to um, Portland yesterday um, nice. for because I had extra manufactured and they are going to portion them and give them out as a microwavable item. Good. But they're doing all the portioning. So I think it will be a good test case for like, how does this work for kids? And, but anyway, I'm jumping around. We, um, we lost that business and um, I had studied e-commerce in the past. And so I had actually bought some, we're a, a perishable product. So it's not the same as shipping a dry product. And every kind of product has its own challenges. I'm looking at you, Sarah, with your glass bottles. And I'm like, glass, yeah. you know, so <laughs> everything, everything has different challenges. Our challenge yeah. is that we're perishable. So we have to get places quickly and they have to stay somewhat cold. And that's, um, it's difficult. And so I had considered um, doing e-commerce in the past. I had bought liners. I had learned about packaging. I had studied um, ice packs. Matt Choi had been such a uh, amazing resource of choice kimchi. Um, for me, he's such an incredibly generous person with his information. So thank you, Matt. And so I had actually a lot of the information I needed. I just hadn't activated it. And so basically the first week of COVID, I spent figuring out how to activate my online store. Um, and I got professional photos taken. There's like photos are so valuable. Um, they can tell a story without words. So I really recommend people invest in photography. And um, then I launched the store and right at that moment, the Good Food Guild. Um, and I know, Sarah, you've been involved with the Good Food Awards. And I think you've even won some. I love it, getting to call you both Sarahs and knowing that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually anyway. judge. I judge. Yeah, Sarah's always a judge for the I Good Food that. Awards. So um, we are not able to apply yet for the awards because we're a perishable noodle and that they haven't had a category for that yet. But they hadn't uh, they asked me to join. And um, so I joined and they 
had a, a Google sheet they were working on, just highlighting members of the Good Food Guild that were doing online uh, e-commerce fulfillment. So I filled out their form and immediately I started getting orders into our store. And like a lot, <laughs> a lot for me. We're talking from yeah. zero, right? Yeah. So, um, and so suddenly e-commerce was like filling this hole and that has been incredible. Um, we got listed in a Bon Appetit list on their website. Um, and then we've been just doing a lot of our own uh, promotion through um, e-newsletters and social media. And so the e-commerce is so different. It's the opposite of schools. Like I knew exactly what I was going to sell for schools from September until May with e-commerce. I don't know what I'm going to sell day to day. day, to day. Yeah. It's way less predictable. And <laughs> so unpredictable. All, yeah. All of a yeah. sudden. And especially if you, if you ever get any kind of like media feature, like we'll have a sauce that nobody pays attention to, but we make yeah. it. But then if somebody talks about it, then all yeah. of a sudden you need a lot of that sauce and you're like, Oh, uh. yeah. Yeah. Or I, I also describe it as having like 1000 new pen pals. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, yeah. hello. Yes. Yeah. I, I would love to answer this question. And I mean, I do want to answer that question, but it's yeah. just a different thing, you know? Um, and we're actually going to launch our yakisoba that we were selling to schools in a one pound bag. And we're just going to sell it at the farmer's market and through e-commerce. Yeah. And we're going to see if we can get people excited about that product just in those two avenues to start with before we finish, you know, the details around getting it into groceries. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, I am excited to trial that avenue and see how I can make it work. Um, but it has been a lifesaver, like a, a real lifesaver. <laughs> well, I think you've done a really good job at adapting because I think that, um, you know, you had this thing that you wanted to do and you were almost ready to do it, but it pushed you to do it. And then I yes. think that, um, you know, it's showing you that it was worth it and that, yeah. um, you know, that it was a good choice to make and that, um, cause you never know, you know, you always have to try things, but this has been a good one. Totally. And it's like, um, keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I don't, I don't always, oh, I don't always um, plan things in advance. It's a good reminder to plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about how you make your noodles and the different products that you have. Okay. And a great. secret sauce too. I have to ask you about a sauce you make. Okay. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of the Meaningful Marketplace. Committed to serving all Oregonians with the mission to advance the science that lives at the crossroads of conservation and production. We are inspired by the creativity of food innovation, new economic opportunities, and new experiences. Because food brings people together. So, Lola, let's talk a little bit about um, the noodles themselves and how you make them and kind of what led you to this point of making them. Sure. I'll give you like a little backstory, too, to get us into it, which is that when I was working at EcoTrust, I was really interested in regional grain. And so I was meeting farmers in the region and writing stories about them. And it was, you know, the, there was a robust uh, farmers market scene and a lot of local vegetable farmers um, selling directly, but it was just beginning to happen in um, grains. Uh, people building regional sized mills. You know, if I had tried to start this business eight, ten years ago, it would have been almost impossible. Um, there just wasn't direct flour sources. 
So I was starting to write those stories. And then, you know, I grew up in Portland. I studied Japanese since I was five and I was in the Japanese immersion program. And I had a lot of friends in that in Japanese American community. And I um, was really into cooking Japanese food and making noodles and learning how to make miso and stuff. So one of my friend's moms um, encouraged me to take a ramen making class at the Wheat Marketing Center, which Sarah's going to know really well. The Wheat Marketing Center was built to like uh, market wheat, U.S. wheat to people all over the world. So I took a ramen making class and I saw my first ramen making machine Mm -hmm. at Tokyo Menki, a little cutie, um, eight, ten years ago, 12 years ago, so long ago. And I was in this class with people all over the world who make ramen from Argentina, from Nigeria, from China, from Korea, from Japan. And I took the class. I learned about, you know, okay, how much protein is in a ramen noodle and, you know, what kind of machinery is needed. I made my, I made my own instant ramen. It just literally blew my mind. And I, I realized somebody should make a local ramen noodle. Somebody should do, someone should use some regional grain and make a local ramen noodle. And that was like my inspiration. And I kept telling people to do it. Like I'd walk around and be like, you should do this. <laughs> and it took a really long time for me to decide I would do it. And what happened is that I met a really amazing man who has a small scale local noodle factory. And he had a larger version of the Tokyo Menki. He had both a little Tokyo Menki and a larger version. And I said, I want to make a certified organic noodle using regional grains that I source directly from farmers. Will you be my partner? Will you help me? And he said, yes. Yeah. (laughs) He's Michael. My is amazing. I've spent time in his noodle factory. He, he, his family was in real estate and they decided they wanted to do food. So they purchased this old noodle factory and yeah. they brought it back to life. Totally. And he came yeah. to the U.S. from Vietnam. He's just an amazing yeah. person with an amazing story and yeah. incredibly generous with entrepreneurs. So yeah. every every week for a year, I went in and played with the smaller machine. And I bought flowers from many producers who I knew. And I worked on blends. And I, I, I really wanted, I didn't want to make just like a whole grain noodle just to be whole grain. I wanted to make a ramen noodle with really good texture, like, you know, koshi is, would be a Japanese word for like the bite. And it want to be slippery. I wanted it to be chewy. And I also wanted it to have local grains in it. So it would have like a flavor that I think speaks to where we are. And so I ended up landing on using some whole grain barley flour in it. Um, but it is also a wheat noodle. Um, and, you know, to figure out the recipe figured out how to get it into organic certification. Um, you know, all things, okay, what's the packaging? How do I get packaging um, approved? Who do I get it approved by? Like shelf life testing. How am I going to move this to market? So I spent about a year learning all of those different pieces before we went to market with the noodle and making some myself and starting to sell the ones I was making just to see, does anyone want to buy this product? <laughs> so when we actually were able to start manufacturing, we're doing it with Michael um, at a, a, a mid-scale, small mid-scale. Um, and, but then I said, oh, well, I want to be selling it with sauce. I want to be selling it with food. So then we started also manufacturing. So I'm like in a unique company where there's multiple things happening at one time. <laughs> one time. Um, maybe it's not so unusual. Um, 
to build in a little bit of complexity into your business. So we do a lot of our own sauce manufacturing and we do condiments and we um, innovate things and we bring them to the farmer's market. And we also partner with Michael. Um, and that's actually what allows us to make noodles for schools. Um, because when we're serving Portland public schools, we're making noodles for 20,000 students, you know, that's amazing. Um, but we're also using 50%, a little more than 50% local whole grain flour from Canvas Country Mill. Um, so yeah, that's that's that process. And the same thing with the yakisoba noodles, just taking time myself with flowers, testing, 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 making testing, pretending I'm Sarah Masoni, change one element, taste it, Ch- make notes, change only one element, taste it, make notes, you know? So kind of pretending I'm a food scientist and slowly saying, and then taking whatever I built and just putting it through the rounds. Sarah was with me for some of this. Can it be steamed? Can it be boiled and then frozen? Can it be parboiled, like, but underboiled and then frozen? Like, how do we Can we bake it? Can we bake it? (laughs) (laughs) Can you um, tell us, tell us about your sauces? So somebody told me you'd make a sauce called Yuzu Koji sauce. Uh, 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 Yes. Orange Uh, lime. Yuzu Kosho. Um, so I love being at the farmer's market. It's just, I know that Sarah Marshall can talk to the, the spirit that's there, but um, Yuzu Kosho is a really awesome condiment. It's it's a Yuzu citrus rind with fresh chilies and salt. It's um, more like a paste than a hot sauce. Um, and we were at the farmer's market and the very last of the fresh chilies were happening. And at local roots, I was watching their amazing chili displays and then the very first of the yuzu citrus was coming in from California. And I'm like, this is the moment. This is like the two-week moment to make this <laughs> condiment. <laughs> so we bought all the last serranos and jalapenos. And then we bought from Organically Grown Company cases of fresh yuzu, the first yuzu of the year. And then we just spent hours uh, zesting. <laughs> <laughs> and we made this condiment that I just love it's really intense you don't use very much of it but it's like alive like it definitely sparkles you know it like it shines really brightly so it's it's spicy but it's not really spicy it's that fermented chili flavor because you add a high percentage of salt and then the chilies begin to ferment i'm making sarah might be able to explain what's actually happening to me but um and then it has the really intense citrus flavor so we only mm-hmm. sold it through the winter and so we're, we are always playing just for our own entertainment and to support are like local farmers. And so at the market, there's often new things. We've been doing a nettle pea shoot pesto with miso um, for the last month. And of course that's going to cycle out. So, um, you know, there's elements of our business that are very set. The ramen noodle, we get fresh barley flour from Dell from Myrtle Creek. And that noodle is, we make it the same. It's just the same noodle um, throughout the year. And then there are other things that we make where we are like playing and imagining, you know, could we bring this to market? Would we want to bring it to market? Um, What's the labor involved? What do people want to pay for this? And so the farmer's market becomes this amazing R&D space for us. Okay. So tell us about your ice cream. My ice cream? Yeah. like how I love to make ice cream. (laughs) No, I hear hear you have an ice cream social. It's true. This is also pre-COVID. I think that... Me, we'll see what happens in the future. 
Um, well, but I just saw Pip's original is releasing ice cream yesterday on Instagram. So now I want to know, is there going to be a Umi Organics ice cream? Oh, I should maybe <laughs> there's not going to be an Umi Organic ice cream. But, uh, but you know that um, I did an event, speaking of events at EcoTrust, and actually asked Salt and Straw to make us an ice cream. And now that ice cream is on their seasonal menu. So it's a uh, candy cat mushroom ice cream that is includes a bit of port in it. And they made it, um, I asked them to make candy cat mushroom ice cream for this event. And now they bring it out in January every year. So there has been some experimental ice creams of mine that have made it into the world, <laughs> which just goes to show like collaboration in the food system, right? Um, I love but- when stuff like that happens because, and as a, as a food maker, you kind of know, never know when something like that is going to happen. Cause one time I made it, um, a uh, spiced wine for it was supposed to be for a holiday party like a one-time yeah. event and then union so wine that. yeah decided to bottle it and now we do it every year and that was oh, just going to be like a fun thing I was doing with my buddies and then it yes. became this like actual product where I was like oh, I guess what like I made this cool wine I love it so much <laughs> yeah totally and you know some of the sauces we make we make a bibim sauce for the farmer's market and I'm looking to make that at a larger scale and we use Choi's gochujang so it's yeah. kind of like, okay, who can I, who can I partner with? Who's making cool stuff? Like, how can we even more, uh, carefully support each other? I love that. I, now I want some of that spice wine on this 80. <laughs> <laughs> you can drink it over, over ice. Yeah, you can make a sangria with it. Yeah. Yeah, um, but but true. just to finish it, we used to ha- we we held an experimental ice cream social, and every year I would make up categories, and people would bring experimental ice creams, and um, we often hosted it in early days when the Portland Mercado had just opened. We would host it. We hosted one there in the winter, <laughs> trying to get people to come out <laughs> and support all the people there, and it's really fun. This year we ha- ha- it was scheduled for the COVID period, but my categories included third grade. So people can think about the ice creams they would have made <laughs> and um, tea and then w- one ingredient cubed, like chocolate times chocolate times chocolate or like grapes times grapes times grapes, you know? So <laughs> that's really fun. I hope yeah. that um, it comes very- back and you get to totally. do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your packaging sure. because I think that, um, it's Im- important for you. And I, um, I, th- when I go to the store, I find your product in the cold case. Mm-hmm. Right. And cause we want to kind of guide people on where to find it. Yeah. So, and it's in these, um, square boxes that sit on the cold case shelf. And so it's, it's more the section where, um, what else, what else is by you? It's like, it's like tofu and kimchi. And yeah. dressing meets like vegan cheese meets fresh pasta. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think if you say that section, people know where to go. They're like, I think oh, so. Yeah, I know yeah. where to get in, the, in our new worlds, we have an idea of that. Yeah. Yeah. So they go there, and you have these cute boxes in their square. And so clearly, you had those boxes designed, right? Yeah. They were they weren't just something that you could buy. So, um, can you kind of tell us what that process was like for you? Sure. So, um, I named the business Umi because Umi means ocean in Japanese. And I think of the ocean not as something that separates us from Japan, but as something that connects us to Japan, that we um, ship our flour across the ocean. It comes back as noodles that, you know, tuna go back and forth, that we are really so near this neighbor, island neighbor of ours, Japan. And so uh, I have a very good friend named Gary Robbins, who's an amazing designer. He mostly does book design through a 
container core. And, but I knew he had the skills to do package design. And so I asked him to design our package and we got the regulations and we read them all the fine print. Okay. How big does this text have to be? How big does this text have to be? Um, gave ourselves a rapid education in that mostly him. Um, and then I said, you know, I want, I want this package to tell my story. I want it to be about the ocean. I want it to be about the connection between Oregon and Japan. I want it to be about, um, you know, uh, vocal connections to farmers. I wanted to like evoke all the feelings that are my business. So I wrote him like a design brief, which I learned how to do in my nonprofit job. And he was like, I'm not going to read that because I know you really well. <laughs> like I know you, I know you really well. I know what you want. So I'm going to just do that. <laughs> so he designed a package and first take, I don't, I don't want to tell this story. It's like, this is going to happen for other people because first take, I was like, Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> you know, like, he did like he made the package that I had dreamed of. Um, but our first package, because we were used to doing everything by hand, was a really labor intensive package to fold. It was like a flat origami. We, it would be like you would fold origami to make it. And so we actually did work with a CAD designer after we'd had that package on the market for a while to think about how to make a package that was much less labor intensive to fold and also didn't require a sticker that could be no adhesives, but would lock closed. And then he, Gary worked on like, how can we take the spirit of our crazy origami packaging <laughs> and put it on this other beautiful thing? I call it the house of noodles. Um, and so that was sort of the process of that. And then working with local um, chipboard printers to print them. Um, packaging was the first time I realized that it's, so much cheaper to buy large quantities but if you buy large quantities then you're set into something <laughs> yeah so. you're, you're stuck with them for a while sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to totally. store it somewhere yeah exactly um but that well, was kind uh, of the voyage of the package i think that you did a really good job and i think you kind of show the importance of of working with someone who's a professional to do it it really does make a difference and not everybody can do that right away i totally yeah. get that when i first started my sauces were just in canning jars with stickers i printed out you know um but as i moved through the business i i was able to change things and i and i yeah. do think it's important to work with someone and it because your packaging really does tell your story like you don't have to be there to tell it it does it yeah and I think having the instructions on how to cook them with the little like hand designs and things like that, hand drawings, it, it all helps to tell your story. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Let's talk about wholesale a little bit um, because you did mention that a challenge for you is doing, um, you know, cold delivery places. Yeah. So how did you figure out how to do that? And um, is there, are there services we can re recommend to people who have a refrigerated product? Yeah, good question. So when we first started making the noodles, um, we were making a certain amount every week. And I was like, oh, well, it'll be just be fresh. We'll just do it only fresh. And then you don't have steady sales. It's not like, oh, I sell 200 pounds this week and 200 pounds next week and 200 pounds the week after. And so um, those early weeks, we when we were first uh, launching, there was like a lot of spoiled noodles. And I actually started um, giving them to my amazing friend, Andy, with Stone Barn Brandy Works. And I just love Stone Barn Brandy Works. And he started turning our original spoiled noodles into whiskey. <laughs> Which I then they that. would take they would take the whiskey, they would take the um I wish I knew my distillery terms, but they would take what was left after uh 
distillation and give it to our friends' pigs at campfire farms. So it became yeah. this like amazing circular. The noodles were not wasted. <laughs> it's called pumice. Pumice, yeah. So anyway, I realized very quickly that that was totally awesome and also extremely expensive way to make noodle whiskey. Um, and so I started uh, freezing. I started testing frozen. Can I freeze the noodles immediately after production? And then can I move them frozen? How long can they be frozen for? And how long is the shelf life once they're defrosted? Um, so that I can ha- hold a certain amount, like par stock is what I call it. Like how much do I have always in supply? So that if somebody came along and said, oh my gosh, I actually want a crazy number of your noodles. I'd say, well, actually I have some in, in back stock that we made two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, so we started freezing the noodles and talking with distributors that could move them frozen. They arrive at the store frozen. And it turns out in learning about this, that that's not uncommon. Pestos are often moved frozen. Fresh pasta is often moved frozen. Many products are moved frozen and stores were more comfortable date coding at store than I expected. I do still get plenty of phone calls from people being like, what's the expiration date on this? It doesn't have a sticker. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I can make a guess. I can make an educated guess for you. Um, but also we can like talk about how it looks and smells and things like that. But, um, but it's state coded at store. So they receive them frozen. They can keep them in the freezer and it tells them the date at which they have to have defrosted them. And then they open the case, then they're date coding it for four weeks. So that's how we've decided to move the product. And it's been really, really helpful for me. And so I always say, okay, I, I determine how much I want to manu- manufacture based on how much I'm hoping to hold in stock so that I always have enough in case that order is really high. Um, and that's sort of how I manage orders as they come in. Because even though you might say to a distributor, please give me a week's notice or two weeks notice, there might come a day, which it has happened many times, where they'd say, but could I pick up tomorrow 20 more cases? <laughs> so I have a question for you about selling in Japan. Oh, yeah. So when are you going to fill a container and ship it over to Japan of frozen noodles? <laughs> it's not on my bucket list right now. It's not like really? something I'm aiming for. No, I would love to go to Japan with and be with all my Japanese friends and my Japanese farming friends and do a bunch of pop-up events and like um, make food together. Totally, yeah, you have to do it. So there's a group called Wasada, which is the Western U.S. Trade Agricultural yeah. Trade Association. Are you a member? I'm not a member. They pay for your airfare and marketing expenses to get to Japan. Yeah. And yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I should like talk to, to on that as well. <laughs> well, you just have to talk to Teresa Yoshioka at yeah. the Department of Ag and she'll get you all set up. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the Japanese have so many amazing products that are noodle products. Um, yeah, but, but they're is, not from Oregon. It's true. Well, well, the one thing that is the differentiator for us, and I do think about this, is that we're certified organic and certified organic products are pretty rare in Japan. And, um, you know, we... Portland is the number one wheat and barley export gate in the nation. We move U.S. wheat through Portland in those yes. big silos, and yep. we ship most of it to Japan. And Japan yep. actually uses a lot of wheat. And so I call it the boomerang, where we ship things to Japan, and then I, it's imported back, and I yeah. um, use it. So this, in this sense, it would be only one direction. But I am first trying to just grow into California. <laughs> <laughs> It may, it may be easier. It may be easier. I mean, you should. It may be easier just to go to Japan. To be 
I am looking. I, I would love to visit Japan soon. It's a place that's so important to me where I have so many people who I love. Um, it's definitely a place I want to be in pretty often. So, Lola, do you have any advice for um, people getting into the food world, new business owners? Um, <clears throat> well, I was thinking about packaging when we were talking about it and how you don't have to aim for perfect. You should think of things as like take one step at a time and just try to do the best you can step by step. And something that we've done a lot in our business is that we trial things in a real way, but a very small way as a test case. So like before I ever did a farmer's market booth, I built a farmer's market booth in my backyard and invited my friends. I actually burned all my bangs off trying to light my propane stove. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's like very important to create real um, environments where you trial things. Like the first time I demoed was in the back of Know Thy Food in like a room with three people. And I just kept cooking noodles and serving them to the three people over and over again and practicing my spiel. Um, it's okay to do things really small and take it step by step and learn as you go. Um, I think that people who are entrepreneurs are often really like chomping at the bit to grow and um, succeed and have big wins. And I think it can be good to try to take things step by step and create a lot of room for making mistakes where when you fail, it isn't so punitive that it destroys you, that it actually is kind of like that I can tell a funny story about it um, and then learn from it and go to the next step. And that's true with packaging. I think it's true with distribution. I think it's good to start with small distributors who are local and work with them and learn about how that goes. I think it's true with partnerships with grocery stores, like Market of Choice or New Seasons, they can help walk you through how to do a promotion and how do you stock up for a promotion. And, you know, it's okay to do things step by step. And really, in everything you do, I think relationships are the most important thing with real people and asking them for advice and holding them really dear. And um, so that's like definitely what I think matters the most to my business is the people that are our partners in the food system all around us. So, yeah, I guess that's my best advice. (laughs) And also that it won't cost you so much money. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And you do a good job connecting with the people that you're around and and creating fun in the marketplace. I think you do a great job with that. And so you're a good example for people to follow along and see what you're doing and how you're interacting with people and the community that you're creating. I mean, we've had tons of conversations about that, how it is but um i think it really shows in your food and what you're doing so i think you're doing a great Thank you job so much. <laughs> <laughs> and i um i think you're a good example for people to see if if they're um trying to figure out how to start and grow their business yeah well thank you yeah. so much mm-hmm. absolutely and it's still hard it's still so yeah. hard <laughs> <laughs> i think that I mean, I really love the advice of doing things on a small scale. And and I've any almost anything I've done, I do for my friends first. So if I was going to teach canning classes in the beginning, I did them for my mom and my cousin first, you know, and my brother and his friends. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's just how I do things until I get good at it. Or if I'm going to have a new flavor, I make it for my friends and family first if I have an idea Um, and I just make, you know, five bottles and not yeah. 5,000. So it's totally. just like, I mean, even my, my business has been around for a while and I still do things that way because you don't, it's, there's not a lot of risk in it. And, yeah. um, and that can keep us going because if I were to jump into things and it didn't work, 
I maybe couldn't recover from it. And so it's yeah. a good way to just kind of like play around and have fun mm-hmm. on a small scale. Totally. And hopefully like lay the foundation that sets you up so that when you make a big choice, you have a lot of confidence in that choice. Yeah, for sure. You can and I would add that um, even though you may have money to go bigger when you start, it's not always a wise choice. Yeah. So I often tell people who come in and say, we, you know, we're going to sell the Fred Meyer. I need a co-packer. I'm going to make 10,000 units to get started. I always tell them, I don't think that's a good idea. I really think you should try selling at the farmer's market here in Portland um, and try that first because you learn so much information from taking the time to meet one-on-one with the consumer. You make more money, actually, because you get to take all the margins. Yeah. And overall, it's just a better way to start. Yeah. And people give you a lot of feedback, like directly to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, you can goodness. be like, oh, okay, that's not something I ever thought about, but thanks for telling me, and I will keep that in mind. Like, making <laughs> yeah. All these other yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lola, thanks for joining us today. It was so good to have yeah. you on the show. Super and so fun. good to see see you. Yes. And um, can you just tell people where they can get your product right now? Where can they um, get you it? Can, if you're in Portland or Seattle areas or a corridor between from Eugene all the way up to Bellingham, you can get them in grocery stores like Market of Choice, New Seasons Market, um, PCC, um, the co-ops, um, <clears throat> some of the natural grocers, and um, Green Zebra, uh, Washamaya, and you can also get them from our online store. So if you go to umiorganic.com, hopefully we built it so that as soon as you arrive, you'll, you'll see. Um, but you can get our noodles and our noodles with miso sesame sauce, which is a really handy kit where you could boil the noodles and have a ready sauce. Um, and we'll ship them to your door. And if you're in the Portland area, we will deliver to your door. Um, so, yeah, check those both out. That's great. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lola. Thank you so much for Thanks, having Lola. me. It was so fun. It was nice to see you today. Nice to see you. Market of Choice is Oregon's largest independent family-owned grocery store. With 10 stores in Oregon, it's all about choice. We focus on having a wide selection of the finest and freshest conventional, natural, organic, local, and health-conscious products. We have more than 1,300 teammates, including real, authentic chefs, bakers, butchers, cheesemongers, florists, and more. We all strive to be authentic, relaxing, enjoyable, shopping experience with our customers, and truly care about the communities where our teammates and our customers live and work. To find the Market of Choice nearest you, visit our website at www.marketofchoice.com. At Market of Choice, we buy local, so you can too. We record Missoni and Marshall live Fridays at 9 a.m. Listen at startupradionetwork.com or find us later on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. If you want to be a guest on the show or give us some food news, you can do that at startupradionetwork.com. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for joining, everybody. Bye. For Bye. Now. Bye. Committed to serving Oregonians with the mission of advancing science that lives at the crossroads of conservation and production, Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are inspired by the creativity of new food development. We strive to find new flavors, new economic opportunities, new experiences, and honor diversity. We are proud sponsors of the Meaningful Marketplace because good food 
brings people together. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.